Hello everybody, welcome to the Journal Club of uh, June, CRM Journal. This is part two. And uh, today we have uh, Dr. Jason Wasfi, who is the senior editor on the paper entitled Expansion of Insurance under the ACA and Invasive Management of Acute Myocardial Infarction. Dr. Wasfi is from the Department of Medicine in uh, the MGH, Harvard Medical School, Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome, Jason. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. And with me, I have the associate editor, Dr. Spencer King and Dr. Gary Mintz. Uh, Dr. Gary Mintz, associate editor, and Dr. Spencer King, the editor at large. And uh, we welcome you, and we want to know, why do you even look at that question? No, th thank you for asking. So th this, is a, this is an issue that I think is trickier than many people like to acknowledge, which is to say there are all those papers out there about Medicaid expansion. And, and this, to, to estimate a relative effect of with clinical outcomes of Medicaid expansion itself, I think is actually a lot more difficult than many of us in this space would like to acknowledge. And what I mean by that is that in general, just as like with clinical decision-making, the gold standard for saying that X is better than Y, so this kind of stent is better than that kind of stent, or this medication is better than that medication, is a randomized control trial. So in health policy, we almost never can do that. There are rare situations where, where policies are randomized, but it, it, it's almost never the case. So in, in, in looking at policies relationships to clinical outcomes in cardiology, you have to do things like measure outcomes in some states versus measure outcomes in other states. So in Medicaid, that's compelling because the intent of the Affordable Care Act was to expand Medicaid across the whole country, but because some small parts of the law were blocked by the Supreme Court, some states ended up expanding and other states ended up not expanding. And so you can do, and most of the papers in this space do that, is they compare the expansion states to the non-expansion states. And, and, you, and so the problem, of course, is that the states that chose to expand Medicaid are very, very different than the states that chose not to medic, expand uh, Medicaid. I mean, states like Connecticut and, and, and New Jersey and, and Massachusetts are very, very different than states like Alabama and Arkansas and Mississippi. Uh, so, so you have to use quasi-experimental statistical techniques to try to unconfound that difference, right? This is the same thing that we have in comparative effectiveness research when you only have observational data as opposed to trials to work from. It's, it's, it's an analogous problem. So, so th this is a much more difficult problem than I think we'd like uh, to acknowledge. It's, it's very hard to use statistics to unconfound the differences between states that are totally different kinds of states. This was not a random Medicaid expansion. The states that chose uh, to, to not do this were, are very, very different places demographically, policy-wise, in terms of income, the structure of the healthcare systems. So it's a very difficult uh, problem to solve. And, and there are a lot of papers on this. And, and I think what I would say is that what we tried to do here is tried to do the best we could at creating a synthetic reference group. We tried to do the best we could to avoid this age-old problem in policy research, which is that 
some states or some uh, areas are different than other areas that did or did not do a policy. So what we did in this case is we created a synthetic reference group for Medicare. So Medicare is important because of, of all the things the Affordable Care Act did, Medicaid expansion doesn't really affect Medicare. So once you're 65 in America, you generally get Medicare. And so there's not uninsurance and insurance. This expansion of insurance really affects younger patients. Um, so what we tried to do is create synthetic refer a reference group and an intervention group that was respectful of where the actual fundamental policy intervention uh, took place. Um, th there's no perfect way to do this. And, and, and even in the Oregon health experiment where there actually was randomization, there are other problems that exist in that setting. It's just, it was just in Oregon, so there's a statistical underpowering issue. Uh, but we tried to do the best we can using prior literature as a guide to sort of unconfounding this problem. Okay, so what was the actual study question here? I mean, that you tried to do because you look specifically on patients who were managed for acute MI. Yeah, no, no, I thank you. So, so we we wanted to look at the ratio of patients that receive PCI for acute MI. And so we thought that was a very clean metric. So the, the other problem that I actually haven't talked about as much so far in this area of research about basically we're trying to say, does the policy help or not? And how does it help? That's the basic thing. And so on one hand, there's problems as I've articulated with the different types of reference groups and states that did and didn't do it and, and sort of issues with unmeasured confounding. But the other issue is mechanism. So we tried a very clean, specific clinical mechanism, which is PCI uh, is a very effective intervention for myocardial infarction. Um, you know, obviously there's, you know, very effective for STEMI um, and, and less effective for non-STEMI, but indicated for all of these things. So we, we tried a very clean um, metric. We wanted to see if the expansion of insurance improved the proportion of patients in the hospital who received PCI for acute MI. And did you compare between states that expanded and states that did not expand it? Yeah, so this is a fantastic question. So most, most papers in this space did do that kind of comparison. We very intentionally did not do that. And so the reason why is because we wanted to minimize this problem related to confoundedness around these, in general, conservative or Republican-leaning poorer states that did not um, expand Medicaid. So we actually used the intervention group as all the patients throughout the whole country who were in um, a Medicaid or uninsured or commercial insurance versus Medicare. We, we intentionally sidestepped that issue. Um, I mean, the, the problem, of course, is that we, you know, we have another problem, which is that patients, uh, you know, in 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 states that expanded Medicaid were included in the reference group. But but we thought that that was the cleanest way, given the alternatives, of of really isolating the policy effect, um, and um, and focused on a very specific metric, which was the proportion of patients for a, who got AM, who had acute MI, uh, who received PCI. So, so just to maybe uh, clarify it, this is basically a comparison before expansion and after expansion. So what was the outcome of an expansion when it was adopted by Estate on the PCI for patients who presented with AMI? Is that a fair statement or are you 
need to correct me on that. Yeah, I, I think that I think the way you said it is is right. Um, you know, we again, we're, the basic question is, when you expand Medicaid, does this number, the ratio of PCIs for AMIs, go up or down? That that's the basic question. And so the, the tricky thing in any paper, there's, there's hundreds of papers on this now about Medicaid expansion doing different things. The challenge is always this confoundedness around the the areas that expanded Medicaid and didn't expand Medicaid. What we found here, what we found here is at least the way we constructed the intervention and the reference groups is that it didn't appear to make a difference. There, there didn't seem to be a difference. And, and so I, I know I'm being interviewed by interventional cardiologists. I, I maybe you, you understand this, I'm sure in some ways better than me that, that um, maybe it's that once a patient's in the hospital, whether they're insured or not insured or Medicaid or commercial insurance or whatever, they get what they need uh, when they present with an acute condition. Uh, maybe that's why we didn't see an effect, but I, th I think it's an important contribution because we have to see where insurance makes a difference and where it doesn't make a difference. But, but uh, I'm looking at table two, which shows the baseline characteristics. And it's really striking that this is almost like a, everything is like 0.0001. I mean, this group flux seems to be completely different. And all what you did, you expanded that more. So why is that? Is there a good explanation that the expansion created uh, more sicker or healthier patients? Right. Let me. I'm, I'm just pulling up the table right now. Um, you're saying basically the differences in characteristics before and after Medicaid yeah, expansion. I'm, I'm having it up. on the screen. You can see it on the. Yeah. No. Thank you. Um, Thank you, Ron. Yeah, I think, um, right, so that, that is a great question. I would say that um, part of this probably has to do with secular trends and disease incidents, right? So the, the, the before and after is, you know, unfortunately, uh, policies are implemented in general at a moment in time. So you, if you're comparing before and after, all sorts of other things are happening in epidemiology and treatment uh, improvements and things like that, that, um, that are changing over time, but there's also the possibility of ascertainment bias, right? Which is to say that there's also a possibility of ascertainment bias, which is that we, we never know, and this is another limitation to this kind of research, is that we never know what's happening to people who aren't getting care if they're not coming to the hospital. You know, and this is especially a problem, you know, there are papers from outpatient registries looking at the effects of Medicaid expansion. And it's, it, to me, it's really limited what you can say, because presumably someone who doesn't have health insurance doesn't go to the doctor. Now, I, I think, again, we tried to minimize that problem by looking at an acute condition. And it is propensity match. Um, Ron, could I? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Spencer. Yeah, uh, so that, that was what struck me about, about this study is that, uh, I'll give you an example, I'm from a state without expansion, okay? And a uh, patient shows up at Grady Hospital with an infarct and uh, nobody's looking at their, whether, uh, you know, whether they've got um, a Medicaid or not. So they're all, they're all treated. So the selection of, of uh, AMI is, it was a curious thing to me to, to try to judge the impact of Medicaid expansion. So how do you, uh, I mean, you, you've, uh, you've addressed that a bit already, but uh, that, that was curious to me that uh, what, what, I, what we did, we, we, what is a measurable that's very clear at Grady Hospital 
is that uh, the bottom line of Grady Hospital is improved if there's Medicaid expansion. So the hospital gets paid rather than not get paid. Uh, maybe not a lot, but they get paid something. Yeah, no, I, I think these are actually very thoughtful points and I appreciate you making them. So I think, I mean, just going back to the conceptual model, the, the whole, you know, just very basic principles, why would we even think that insurance would change health outcomes? The answer, of course, is because uninsured people don't have access to health care unless they have insurance. And, and, and so that presents, from a research perspective, that conceptual model provides, it creates some difficulties because if someone doesn't have health insurance, you know, on, on one hand, as you're saying, people who have heart attacks get what they need. When they end up in the hospital, it helps, um, you know, Grady's bottom line if they have Medicaid because you won't have to eat the cost of a, of a patient without an insurance. You don't get much, as you've said, but you get more than zero, which is, a, you know, what you'd get potentially in, in, in an uninsured patient. So, so, so on one hand, it might be better for us to look at outpatient care registries, things that are presumably more sensitive to insurance or not insurance. But the whole problem there is a different problem from a research perspective, which is that, and, and I've seen this in these papers, is that there are all these papers saying, oh, well, outpatient blood pressure control is better for if you have Medicaid expansion or insurance. But that, that's a real, I think saying that's a real problem because I presume that the patients who don't have health insurance are not going to the doctor. So I, I presume that any effect of Medicaid expansion that one sees in, in blood pressure control or lipid control is probably related to confounding rather than an effect, an effect of the policy. Um, but, but on the other hand, I totally acknowledge the problem that you're pointing out with acute conditions, which is that we, we looked at acute condition because we wanted to avoid this problem of ascertainment bias, but we create another problem for sure, which is that maybe you don't see an effect when it's an acute condition because we all take care of patients that come into our doors regardless of, of their insurance status. Well, one thing I know for sure, and I base this on a high level of scientific evidence that people who have no insurance don't go to the doctor very much. And, uh, my evidence is that uh, I know some people who have no insurance and I keep trying to figure out ways to get them insurance because they refuse to go to the doctor because they can't bear the idea. Not only do they get billed if they have no insurance, they get the actual charge. They don't. They don't get. They don't get the hospital reimbursement of it. So the disincentive to go to the doctor is gigantic, and it's a wonderful thing to be studying. I just worry about the, the acute condition and, and whether you can really get at it from looking at. Uh, at the uh, infarct. So one, one, one comment that I had, if you look at the groups again, you'll see that after expansion overall, like they had more diabetes, they had more hypertension, they had uh, even more depression. Uh, it looks like that this group, uh, renal failure, for example, 21.1% versus 18.7%. I know you did propensity weight matching, which is very difficult when you have such a strong confounders. Uh, but um, it is what it is. I mean, I know there are limitations, but it just speaks again for the point that both of you mentioned that those patients probably were uh, sicker than the patient who were already uh, before the expansion. So you added more sick patients because they were not seeing a doctor before. But uh, just uh, for the sake of time, I want to jump maybe to the outcome 
you have a comparison here of the non-Medicare group to the Medicare group. You want to elaborate a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is, um, and the reason why we, we gave these names, so the Medicare group, again, we were trying the best we could at finding a group of patients that were not affected by insurance expansion. So we picked this older group of patients in America, Older patients don't, in general, churn in and out of insurance. They, they stay in Medicare. So they're sort of, it, it is sort of true that the ACA affected Medicare delivery. So that setting that aside for a moment, they don't churn in and out of insurance. So we constructed these groups. The Medicare is the reference group or the control group. And the non-Medicare group is the group that's presumed most affected by insurance expansion. And what we found was not, once you did the, the, the propensity weighting, uh, and looked at this main outcome, which again was a ratio of PCI for AMI, uh, we didn't really see much of a difference. So, so you know, I think consistent with Dr. King's experience, um, with a lot of our experiences, you didn't, you don't see a difference in this specific outcome associated with uh, insurance expansion. And I think, to, to, as clinicians, that probably makes sense. Again, for the reason why. Um, you know, for the reasons that we're discussing is that in general, when people come for acute conditions, um, they, they, they get treated regardless of their insurance status. I think this is an incredibly difficult analytic area. And I think it's more difficult than those of us who do research uh, can acknowledge necessarily, is that th there's really, you can think about a million ways to do this. Um, you know, thinking through this over the years with my American Heart Association grant, which was on this topic, just to think about how to construct the reference groups is really difficult. And, and I think there's no perfect solution. You can go to outpatient work, but you know, as we're talking about, as everyone's saying, a lot of the patients who are uninsured aren't in outpatient registries because they're not getting care at all. So it's hard to tell. I mean, the, the one much better way to do this would be randomization. If you could have a situation where people were randomized to insurance, which again, sort of happened in the Oregon Health Experiment, you would be able to say which, with much stronger, you would avoid what, what Dr. Waxman is saying, which is that maybe the patients are different. In, even if you propensity weight, there may be unmeasured confounders that are still confounding the analysis. This is an entirely legitimate uh, point. So this is a very tricky space. The one way to do this better would be randomization. And so with policies, bundled payments, we're going to get randomized. Um, at least according to metropolitan statistical areas, and, and, and that never ended up happening. But that's the kind of thing that would actually give you firmer answers about what policies do to clinical outcomes. Ron, can I just interject a couple of small points? So I think that we all agree that if a patient shows up in the hospital with an infarct, today they get primary PCI unless it's so far out from the chest pain onset that people think it's, you know, it, it's beyond the window where it makes a difference. Um, so that might be one variable that would be affected by people who do and do not have insurance. But the thing that struck me about these graphs is that there's been an incremental increase in PCI treatment of AMI over the time period you studied. So there clearly has been some impact of um, patient education, um, whether or not somebody has insurance or does not have insurance. And maybe not be as high as we would like to see it, but it is gradually increasing. Yeah, it's a very good point. 
Um, Jason, what is that you want to ask and the audience to take as a take home message from this uh, paper and from this work? And is expansion is a good thing? It's not a good thing? I mean, it's like, obviously, I mean, we tried to get it out of the party line because what you mentioned in the intro, it was a lot of based on uh, party line by different states, whether they're blue states or red states. But uh, uh, if we leave the politics outside of this, what is the message that we should take from this work that you did? I think the message is, is this, which is, you know, I'm, I'm a doctor and I'm here to provide healthcare for people. And I, I think we have to believe that expanding health coverage and access to care is a good thing, right? It's a, I, I think, you know, I, I think where the, the knowledge gaps are, are more problematic are sort of what are the mechanisms and how are best how are insurance plans best suited to to cover people um, and and the, the I just I think I would just say that I, I I've been years on this grant now and being very humble about this space which is that it, we don't know as much as we need to know and a lot of it's related to confounding you know. Dr. Mintz is talking about basically confounding and longitudinal analysis. Is that when education's happening at the same time, or guidelines are being published, or treatments are improving, or the, the incidence of disease is changing, that's a confounder that uh, obscures us seeing the policy effect, the effect of policy on clinical outcomes. So I, I do think there's a role for randomization in this space, but it's just, it's very difficult as a practical matter in America to randomize people to policies. You know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not, you know, politicians wouldn't think that way. It's harder to implement, but that would give us the answer about how policies affect clinical outcomes for patients. I, I agree, but I just don't think that we can randomize a situation like that. So you're basically posing a situation which says, well, you have to take for granted that expansion is a good thing, uh, more access to doctors, uh, you'll do much better. We don't even have a way to measure it and just take it for what it is. But I would say that there are some, um, I would say, skeptics, always there are skeptics, that would say that uh, maybe too much exposure to medicine is not a good thing. Uh, you do some unnecessary procedures, you encounter complications, you intervene in the natural life of the patients. So I think it is really important to go to the bottom of it because I know we all means good, but we have to prove that uh, this is associated with good outcome. And that's where I think the randomization is, is so critical because otherwise we can fight this for forever. And for completely different reasons why some states decided to do the expansion or not to do the expansion. It was for them, it was just a question of politics or pocket and who's gonna pay for that. But I think um, it could be sometimes a situation, like I would expect it, frankly, that the expansion group would be much better uh, because, but it looked like that uh, there are some other things that we need to understand. So. I'll give you the final word, Jason. Uh, this is your work, and maybe you'll tell us what is in the pipeline. And I thank you for uh, submitting that uh, interesting paper to the journal. Well, no, th yeah, thank you for publishing it. Um, I think that what I would say is, as a, as a final word on this is that it is so important to be humble about observational data. I, I think, you know, I've spent my career in, in sort of quasi-experimental methods with observational data, and I... I think it's fun. I think it's interesting. I think you can address important things that are not addressed in other 
in trials. And there's things we have to decide whether policies or clinical decisions that haven't been experiment, that haven't had a trial. But it, it's really important to be humble about different sources of missing variables, bias, bias confounding um, stuff related to in longitudinal analysis is common in policy research, thinking about confounding secular trends. You know, if, if, if death rates are going up for some other reason, it's not necessarily because of the policy. And that's our statistical tools to deal with these kinds of problems are not as good as, as I think we'd like to believe. And the numbers not necessarily um, overcoming those limitations. You have large numbers, so you're talking about the millions. You would think that the millions will help you, but then you see that these groups are different. So anyway, thank you so much uh, to all of you, Dr. King, Dr. Means, Dr. Wasfi for joining us for another uh, journal club for the CRM journal. And uh, cannot wait to share with you the July uh, session of the journal club. Thanks, everybody.